The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Antonellis, Director of the Center for Hearing Health in Millneck, New York. Susan, tell us about your background. How did you get into the world of hearing? Okay. Um, well, I originally started as a psychology major. And uh, when I saw that it wasn't for me, I took a speech communication class. And when I took that class, I really enjoyed it. And I realized that um, I still wanted to work with people on, a, on an individual level. Uh, I wanted to uh, get involved with people and help them with maybe some disabilities. So I asked my advisor, what other field is there in this field that I could get into? And she said, well, there's speech pathology and audiology. So when you start out in the fields, you start in the combination. Once you go further in your education, you have to choose one. And I enjoy the audiology piece better because it was Speech pathologists will probably kill me for this, but I have so many speech pathology friends, so I'm not worried. <laughs> but I always find that audiology was more scientific. Uh, so I liked that piece. And um, my mother had only hearing in one ear. And I think maybe that uh, pushed me a little bit uh, toward it. And I decided that I was going to go that route. And ever since then, I've been in love with the field. But I'm in love primarily with the rehabilitative side of the field. Tell us about the Milnick family of organizations. You have a campus in Milnick of some beautiful historic buildings. People think of Milnick, they think of the School for the Deaf. And certainly the beautiful School for the Deaf is on that campus. But Milnick family of organizations is made up of many divisions. And we'll start with the school, the Milnick School for the Deaf. Uh, takes in children that are deaf and hard of hearing. It starts from preschool. And they provide wonderful services, all the services that children would need, speech, any kind of um, counseling services. It's all provided in the school, along with the state education department school program. So that's the school for the deaf. Then we have Milnex Services, which is when the children are finished, because they can go till 21 years of age. When they're finished, Milnex Services helps them. What do you do now? And Milnex Services will help them with that um, task. In addition, Milnex Services also runs a dayhab program for multiply handicapped, which would be deaf, hard of hearing, and maybe other issues. So they also hold a dayhab program. They help with employment. So that's Milnex Services. The Center for Hearing Health falls under Milnex Services. We are a program of Milnex Services, and um, our center really we uh, reach out. We reach out to the community. We do uh, all kinds of audiological services, state-of-the-art equipment. We have a lovely uh, center, and um, we provide full evaluations, hearing aid evaluations, hearing aid uh, checks, hearing aid follow-ups. And we also do uh, central auditory processing testing for some of the young children. Uh, we uh, also, our facility is utilized by the audiologist from the school and she performs the, the testing for the school children in our building. So we provide a lot of services, but in addition, we have increased our services with going to the rehab part of audiology. We offer support groups. We offer um, counseling if needed. We offer to work with the families because families are involved when there's problems with hearing. Uh, they're affected too. So all of these services we have at the center that Center for Hearing Health. Then we have the Friends for the Deaf. The Lutheran Friends for the Deaf is the religious part of the organization, and it also helps anyone who's in need, helps employees, 
staff and outside community people with anything they would need. That's the Lutheran Friends of the Deaf. And then we have the foundation. The foundation is the envelope for all of the organizations. So the truth is, when I started at Milnick, I didn't know that that's the way Milnick was um, broken down into those organizations. I thought it was School for the Deaf. But now I realize that is so much more than that. So really, if you come on our facility, you can get so many things or be helped in so many other ways besides, you know, just the center. The center will tell you, go, you can try here. So we have resources. And that's what I think is very important at Milnick, that we can offer so many resources to the heart of hearing and deaf. And that's our goal. How are you funded? We, uh, we're an LLC. The Center for Hearing is a limited liability corporation. The school is funded by state. We do um, look for donors as much as possible because we do have needs as far as financing certain projects, certain equipment, things are expensive. So, and we do have uh, donors and we depend on our donors and our donors have been wonderful to us. But the state is, uh, the school is funded by the state. If I'm a young parent and I have uh, a very young child, a baby, how do I identify early signs of uh, hearing weakness? That's a great question, Bill, because the early detection is the most important. Now, there is universal newborn hearing screenings. Every baby that is born in a hospital has their hearing tested through objective means. They do autoacoustic emissions or ABR testing. So there is no baby now that leaves the hospital that has not been identified in some way if there's a problem. So think about that, how young that is. We years ago, we could, we, some children weren't identified until two, three years old. This has been a monumental change in audiology. So if a child fails a newborn hearing screening, then they would be referred for follow-up testing and usually um, auditory brainstem response, which is a um, objective test with electrodes that measures hearing, and that's done. And then from that test, or OAE, excuse me, distortion product autoacoustic emissions, and then from those tests, if they fail those tests, they referred further. So I'll give you an example. In a few weeks, we're going to be seeing a little infant who did fail the newborn hearing screening, has now f failed an ABR, and now is going to come into our office and have testing done to go further. And they would be fitted, if you think about it, for hearing aids at such a young age, which is so important. And of course, now with cochlear implants, then most likely that child will go to a cochlear implant. But it's early detection is so important. And we have accomplished that now. If there's not a problem in the hospital, do the parents, are they aware that that testing is being done or are they only notified when there might be an issue? No, every every mother goes home with a pamphlet that says your child has been tested and passed the newborn hearing screening or, you know, your child had a problem, we would like you, and they give them a list of places where they can go to be tested further. What makes the Milnick Center for Hearing Health different from other hearing centers? I think what makes us different is we look at the whole person. We don't look just look at the ears. Uh, we want to get to know our patients. We want to find out what their real needs are. What's What do they do? What's their social life? And the decision, making a decision on getting amplification or making a decision as to whether you're a cochlear implant candidate, that's a major monumental thing. And for many people, they have waited long and hard before they would give in to this. So now, especially because we know that we hear with our brain, 
and not with our ears, we realize that the stimulation of the brain through auditory stimulation will allow us to, and it was in the times, reduce the rate of Alzheimer's and dementia. So earlier to aid your hearing is better than later. So when we see people, we know that they're struggling through many things. So we want to go over their lifestyle. What are your needs? We want to make it personal for them. And we're not a, a place that says, okay, we'll tell them you're in need of hearing aid. You have to do this. But we don't say you have to buy this brand. You have to buy that brand. Oh, this is what we think you should have. And that's it. We decide together. We have a consult. We go over their lifestyle. We talk about the things they do socially. Then we talk about where do you have your most trouble? Every hearing aid manufacturer today does a wonderful job with speech understanding and um, noise reduction, but the each one has some special maybe option in the in the company that maybe would be better for one person versus the other. So unless you discuss with your client what their lifestyle is, you will never know that. And then together, you and the client make the decision as to what they want to try. I remember seeing somewhere that the earliest hearing aids were basically tin horns, mm -hmm. and we've come a long way with technology. I remember that um, hearing aids used to be the size of like transistor radios. Explain how the technology has evolved over the last uh, several decades, and technology uh, on a yearly basis just uh, improves incrementally. That is the one thing that audiologists have the toughest time in because it's changing all of the time. And we have to keep up with that. And unless we keep ourselves abreast of all the new technology out there, we're not doing a service to our clients. So we do at Milneck, the audiologists that are there, we try to keep up on all the newest technology uh, so that we could offer that to clients. The other thing is many times um, the hearing aid is not the end all and be all. They need other things. There's accessories. There's so many other assistive devices that can be utilized. But as far as talking about um, technology, we originally started out with hearing aids, as you said, with, you know, they used to say like a horn, they used to say. We also had the body aid. If you remember, if you ever saw people with a box clipped onto their clothing and then a wire to their ear, then it went to behind the ear hearing aids, became a little bit smaller. Then you went to the, the big thing, the big hype in the ear hearing aids custom mold, one piece in your ear. Now we've gone full circle. We've gone back to the behind the ear, but small, sleek, rechargeable. That's the new technology of today. And the most important, digital. Okay, years ago, analog took an average and then you fit the hearing aid. We used to actually use a little tiny screwdriver on the hearing aid that had a little pot and you would turn it to make changes. Now. We wouldn't even know what to do with that screwdriver because everything is done on the computer. It's all computerized. And it gives us so much more flexibility. And it gives us the ability to let our clients be part of the process of fitting because they sit with us at the computer and we say to them, what do you think? Do you think this sounds better? Oh, I, and we try something else and they go, oh, I like that sound better. It sounds better for me. These are the advances we've made. It has been full circle. And now we have the thin, tiny, thin tube, small dome in the ear. To me, those hearing aids are less visible than the in the ears, unless you get, um, you know, really the tiny, um, ultra small micro uh, CICs, which is completely in the canal. However, that's not for everybody. So we have so many more options for our, 
uh, clients. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Antonellis, director of the Center for Hearing Health in Milneck, New York. Susan, let's just quickly walk through the basics of, of a hearing aid. Hearing aids amplify. They equalize, basically compensating for different frequency deficiencies. The other is a noise reduction. Uh, there are other components that go into the basics of a hearing aid. One of the newest technology components that we have now is um, we're able to, most of the hearing aids today can be paired to phones. You know, that's our world now, the iPhone. Um, iPhone, the Android, and the hearing aids can be paired to the phones and the client can actually control the hearing aids through the phone. They can actually stream music through the hearing aids. Their telephone calls could be streamed into the hearing aids. So those, I think, are additional advances that have been a wonderful addition to changes in hearing aid technology. However, with your older population, which is the majority of the population that we deal with mostly for hearing loss in our center right now, you do find that many of them are not... Uh, the technology challenged in some way. They don't have an iPhone. They still have a flip phone. Many people are, are uncomfortable with Bluetooth. They don't like all of that. So we as audiologists have to know what are the means we can give them. And that comes in with accessories, where remote controls. There are little remote controls the size of um, the clicker that you may use on your car. They can change their um, volume, their programs, their memories. So those are things that hearing aids have advanced beyond just giving them gain, um, you know, certain decibel levels, certain frequency range. It, it give, gives us the uh, latitude to find these other things to give them to utilize, especially we have many elderly that have sight problems, which is part of our evaluation we do with them. How is your sight? How is your um, dexterity? You know, it's very wonderful if somebody wants to come in and they don't want anybody to see it. They want the smallest thing on the market. But if they can't change that little tiny battery, is that going to do any good for them? So we that's why I say we talk with our clients. We give them that personalized service. And that's what they need. Because if you're going to fit a person who has, um, they're, they're right-handed and they have um, a tremor on that side, why would you fit them with a small instrument to reach in their ear when they can't do that? And many of the really tiny instruments don't always give us the ability to have other accessories because you're dealing with a small size, your circuitry is smaller. There are some limitations to the smaller instruments. How often do hearing aid batteries have to be changed? Once a week, regular batteries. Now, rechargeability has been a very big advancement. The interesting part was when the representatives first came in to tell us about rechargeability, they said, just think of all the time you're going to save training with your, uh, you know, with the training of putting the batteries in and all that if you go to rechargeability. So now we spend that time with their phone when we have to attach. I feel like a Verizon representative. <laughs> in fact, uh, just a little thing, because it was becoming so rampant that they were having so much trouble with their phones, and then they would come back, and now we're connecting and we're pairing. And, you know, uh, up there, it's, you know, they have a, your cell use is, is difficult. We finally instituted every Wednesday morning Tech Cafe. 
It goes at it starts at nine thirty, and you call up and tell us you want to come in, and we have you on the list. We do it as a group, and we go with the people in the conference room. We offer some coffee and donuts, and they tell us what their problem is, and we spend it with them, working on their phones, and we put away that hour to do it every Wednesday. Of course. Don't get me wrong. If somebody needs that appointment and they can't make that time, we will see them another time. But we instituted that and we have a very good um, clientele that come in for that because this way we're not using time that can be used for other things for them on phones. But that's a good question about uh, the, re the batteries in that. But the rechargeability batteries. They originally came out with a Z power system for rechargeability where you would have to change the battery once a year. So you would get a new rechargeable battery on an annual basis. They, they had some difficulties. So now most of the companies went to lithium rechargeability. So the battery for most companies, it's sealed in the hearing aid. They never see the battery, they never touch the battery, and they never open it. And that lithium battery usually will last close to the life of the hearing aid, which is average four to five years. However, if you know, during that period, we usually send it in for refurbish. They open it up, put a new one in. That's why we say the life of the hearing aid. Why is the life limited to four to five years? It's not. I have patients that have hearing aids for nine years. However, what's when we talk about technology, you know, they get to the fourth year and they're saying, you know, it's not as good as it was when I first got it. Um, I find that, you know, I'm not I'm missing things more now. You know, is there anything new out there? Because technology changes and the advancements in technology, that's why we say the average life. And people come to us sometimes and say, even, you know, they say at, at five years, you know, I'm not hearing, what else do you have now I'd like to see? Um, you know, what else is out there? Because I'm not hearing as well as I did before. Are these uh, uh, wireless uh, charging on these pads that, uh, that people oh, no, put a device a, down like a, a smartphone? No, they're plug-in. Um, they're like a USB usually and a plug. The only one that does make one... Um, Signia makes a hearing aid where called a stiletto, stiletto. I was called stilettos. I guess I'm thinking about buying shoes. <laughs> the stiletto, <laughs> and they make it's a very thin behind the ear hearing aid. Goes into a portable charger, and then the charge. Once you charge it in the wall, that charger lasts for three days. So you could take the charger away from it. So that's good for people that travel because some people don't want to take the charger. That's why. There are some companies that still allow regular or rechargeable batteries. Some people want that. Uh, the only thing I object to that sometimes is when the people mix up the rechargeables and the regular batteries, and that becomes a problem. So, but otherwise, that's what, and the Z Power allowed that. And that's why it was very popular to be in the Z Power. Some people talk about lithium, but uh, anyone we've had loves the lithium. They like the idea. They don't have to look at it. They don't have to touch the battery. And the Stiletto is a lithium rechargeable too, but you could take it. And so for a weekend, you could go away. You don't need to bring any plugs. Just take that charger with you. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Antonellis, Director of the Center for Hearing Health in Millneck, New York. Hearing aids are programmed with software. Yes. And there's different software for every manufacturer, and they update it constantly so that keeps us on our toes <laughs> but um, yes it's uh, all done with software and then there is a wireless connection that we make between the hearing aid and our computer and then we um, program from there because sometimes the, the 
the older versions, and we still see people that have older hearing aids that we have to program or adjust for them. So we have all the wired things. Sometimes when we put the necklace loop on them, they go, oh, am I going to have to wear this? <laughs> that was that's the first thing I said. What's wrong? It's a new piece of jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's it. And, and one thing I want to say, Bill, what's so important is to make a relationship with the patient. That is very important. You have to form a bond with them. You have to allow them to trust you, and you have to trust them that they're telling you exactly what's happening to them. And I think that's what we do at Milnick. We form that bond. We make a relationship with our patients. And that's where I, where I think we stand out. As we grow older, is there a scientific curve when people start to lose their hearing? And is hearing loss symmetrical? Good, good question. There is no age, and um, we know that from we see the children in the school, but those losses usually are genetic. The truth of the matter is most hearing losses we don't are of unknown cause. Unless you go through genetic testing, you, you really wouldn't know what caused the hearing loss. We see now younger people with hearing loss, and I think a lot of it is due to the a lot of the earbuds they wear, the loud music and all that has contributed. Now it would be a noise-induced hearing loss. We're seeing a lot of servicemen, our, you know, people that were in active combat coming back with hearing loss. So those are exterior things that cause hearing loss. What you're talking about really is presbycusis, which we call hearing loss due to aging. And that could start in the 60s with some people. It depends on your genetic, genetic makeup. It could start in the 60s and then go up upward but i have some 80 year olds that still have pretty good hearing but that's where you see the hearing loss in that range in the 60s now it's getting lower but we're missing a large group in the 50s because they feel oh, i'm still young i don't need to be bothered but they may have that high frequency drop and the stimulation to the ears could be important there is no age as far as that's but presbycusis is hearing loss due to aging. And I have to tell you that I've made my own name because I won't tell you how many times a day husbands and wives come in and he says, there's nothing wrong with my hearing. She says it. And I, and then she's, he'll say the same. I have the opposite also. And I tell them there's a name for that. That's called spouse acousis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's not press acousis. That's spouse acousis. <laughs> that's delightful. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's, you know, a separate issue. In most cases, they do have some hearing loss. And you can't talk to people that have hearing loss from another room through uh, running water. They're not going to hear it. Although I'm, I'm sure men are, are more prone to denial with their medical condition. But how does it manifest itself? If I am c carrying on a conversation with somebody and I'm beginning to go into early stages of hearing loss, is the vocal range compromised? Am I hearing muffled sounds? You you said higher frequencies, mm -hmm. and I would associate higher frequencies with listening to music as opposed to speech, which is in a certain frequency range. Mm -hmm. okay. So if I'm losing my hearing, I'm losing that mid-range of frequencies and the high, or how does that explain well, that? The speech frequency ranges, most of speech sounds are, the consonants are in the higher frequencies. The consonant sounds give us clarity. Vowels give us the power. So the usual complaint when they first come in and first starting to notice hearing loss is, I hear, but I don't always understand what someone's saying. So they hear the voices, they know they're speaking to them, but they lose the clarity. It's not sharp anymore. You know, uh, so, and it's not robust. So they're losing it. Now, children's voices 
and women's voices tend to be more high-pitched. So usually people have more trouble with that. Foreign accent is more difficult for people with hearing loss. The other thing is that sometimes they will misunderstand. And when people start to misunderstand a lot, people start to say, gee, I don't know, what's with Joe? Is he starting to lose it? And it's not that, it's a hearing loss. And I always urge people when they come and they tell, and I see they have hearing loss. They're, well, I don't want it. I don't want to do a hearing aid. I don't want this. And I say to them, that's fine. That's your decision. However, just know that people are noticing that you're having difficulty and they're not thinking about your hearing. They're saying so-and-so is losing it. And you don't want that. You would rather hear and be part of the conversation. And that's the other piece. The When you have hearing loss, there is a lot of isolation. People start to move away from social situations. That affects the spouse, that affects the family because you're not interacting anymore with your family. You stay by yourself because you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to sound like you don't, you're out of it. So why not help yourself to be back and part of that? And you know that's why we hold support groups every um, month a third week, a third Thursday of every month, we hold support groups. We have speakers, but we also have a, a regular group that comes and they love to talk about these issues because they're not alone. And, and it helps. It's a cam camaraderie that they've uh, achieved. And that's a free service that we offer in the office. It's a community service. And we've had, we have a very nice group. And we have a lot of regulars. And we have nice speakers for them to uh, listen to about different things that have come up in hearing. So... You know, that's a piece that we also give that is different from other. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Antonellis, director of the Center for Hearing Health in Millneck, New York. Susan, tell us about the cochlear um, suite at, uh, at Millneck. Well, we are very proud to have um, the cochlear implant suite. It is the manual um and Claire Barron, cochlear implant suite. The Barons have been have very generously donated the uh, means for us to uh, form this suite, which is in our building, and it's underneath. It's on the lower level. It's all reconstructed with state-of-the-art equipment, and we are now able to provide services to the community and our school children who are implanted, which we were never able to do before. So this has been monumental for us. Um, when I first was hired at Milnek, that was one of the things they asked me on my first meeting was, what are you gonna do about the cochlear implant kids? I said, you know, give us time, we'll get to it. Let's do what we need to do first and then we'll get to it. Well, this was the final thing and we now have that cochlear implant suite. So, you know, we have also with that suite partnered with a Wild Cornell in New York so we will be, any patients there who may want to utilize Long Island services will be able to use our services too. And we will be able to part, be reciprocal with them. If people want to have the um, evaluation for the surgery, they could go to the Wild Cornell Center if they like, or where, you know, they can go to any center they like. However, we can do candidacy evaluations now. We're able to do all of that at the center, which is monumental for us. How do you identify a patient for cochlear? One of the Food and Drug Administration has a vast criteria. Uh, first of all, there, um, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, but when they first came out with cochlear implants, mostly children, you heard young children and, and babies were being fitted with the implant. I mean, it has done 
you talk to a child who was fitted with an implant early on, you would not be able to tell they were even deaf. Their speech, everything is is clear. It almost sounds normal. So that's where we always, that's where it was when we first started. But now they are implanting adults. I have 80 year old adults that are being implanted. And these are, the criteria is, if you, of course, anyone deaf, you know, but they'd have to have the uh, anatomical uh, ability to have the implant. And it all has to be released by the surgeon that they say they're a candidate. But audiologically, they cannot do well with a hearing aid. And the criteria is if they cannot understand 60%, less than 60% of speech with amplification, they, excuse me, they can be a candidate for an implant in adults. So that's the criteria. They have to be able, not be able to get 60% with their hearing aids. If they are able to get that, they really wouldn't be a candidate. Also, single-sided deafness, they never did implants on single-sided deafness, but now they are considering people with single-sided deafness to get an implant. Of course, um, there are many facilities that they can go to to find out more information. They can go on to different uh, websites, Cochlear Implant. There are different companies. So we will be dealing with a couple of companies in our office. We are Cochlear Provider Network. So... We're, we're excited, we're very excited, but for the children in the school, it's wonderful because many of those children have have implants. Some of them have difficulty getting into the city to where they were and their surgeries or where they had their um, mapping. Mapping is what we call, that's equivalent to program for hearing aids. It's mapping of a cochlear implant. And now children can have adjustments, troubleshooting and remapping in at Milnex. So for the children in the school, it's a wonderful thing because now they will have that ability to do, they don't have to go outside, they don't have to go a far trip, because some of them, it's difficult for them to get out there. Explain the procedure, how long does it take? As far as the candidacy evaluation, that can take about two hours, because we do a full audiological evaluation, some extra tests for candidacy, and then of course the counseling, which takes a while. We have to talk to them about uh, family support and all of that for the implant, and then we refer them at that point then to a surgeon. We give them a list and then they can go to whatever surgeon they prefer and then um, get, get the implant. Is the surgery done on location or? It's, now a lot of it is ambulatory. Years ago it wasn't, but now it's usually done at the hospital. It would not be done by us by our, on our location at all. Whatever hospital they would go to, that's where they'd have the surgery. But many times it's one day. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Antonellis, Director of the Center for Hearing Health in Milnet. Susan, I understand you have a mobile van. Uh, tell us about that project. All right. Um, the mobile van, it, believe it or not, is a complete suite. We have a, a soundproof booth. We can do complete audiologicals, full audiological evaluations, and we can also program hearing aids. It is a wonderful um task for us to take that to especially assistive living facilities, nursing homes, for people that are not able to get out or not able to come to us. It is handicap accessible. We have a lift on it. Wheelchair bound people can go on the lift, be brought right up into the van. Right now, we've been using it a lot for community service. We go, uh, we've gone out with the St. Francis medical van and we've done um, screenings, hearing screenings. So hearing screenings is a short test, just tells you whether you have a problem or you don't have a problem. 
But what we're trying to do is expand that service. We want to expand the service by going in for these people that already know they have a hearing problem. So the screening is not going to tell them anything they don't know already. Um, and go and do full evaluations on the people that can't get to us. And then insurance, uh, Medicare pays for um, a full audiological once a year. So uh, anyone who's on Medicare and other insurances also, we do take most insurance. I'm not going to say we take all, we take most, okay? So once we find that you're able to, your insurance will pay for it, we could go do the full eval. And then if you would need the hearing aid, we could even go back and fit that hearing aid on demand. Okay? But right now we've utilized it more for community service. We uh, last, in 2018, we screened 961 people in the year. Okay, so we really have provided a nice community service across Long Island. But, you know, we want to, um, we have no funding for the van. So um, we just, this is all community service work. So we're, you know, we're limited in certain things that we could do now because our funding is getting low on the van. But we do utilize it in that way. And the community has very well been served with our van as far as uh, hearing screenings, knowledge that this hearing loss exists. Oh, and we also have a hearing aid um, cleaning box on the van. So we're able to, people that have hearing aids, they always come up, but to do a screening on them, they know already they have a hearing loss. We're able to clean hearing aids and, um, you know, uh, polish them up a little bit for them in the sense of getting any debris, wax, and all of that out of their hearing aid. So we can do that on the van too. There's an ad running on TV for a new product that you can get at any one of the drugstores for cleaning wax out of one's ears. Mm -hmm. Explain that. No, People, those are over-the-counter, you know, thing, uh, mechanisms. Do I believe in them? I, I don't utilize it, but the only thing I do you recommend to people are a Debrox, which is a drop that you can put in your ear to loosen up the wax. But if somebody has a lot of wax, it should be removed by... A medical professional uh, you know people have this thing if I want everybody to read the q-tip box because the q-tip box says do not insert an ear canal you know I tell people that I see please use it for your makeup and don't use it for your ears because what happens is when you push that q-tip in you eventually cause the ear not to produce wax and wax is there as a protective coating of the ear it's not i know it becomes a nuisance some people accumulate more than others and if they do you know you're going to have the problem with the impact of wax but those people that have that problem know it and if they go on a routine basis to get the wax removed it won't cause them trouble and people that wear hearing aids many of them will tend to accumulate more wax because the ear is closed off air is not going in so they tend to get wax and that is our biggest problem with hearing aids people call up and they say I don't know, all of a sudden my hearing aid doesn't work. They come in, it's clogged with wax. It is, I'm going to tell you, almost 90% of our issues. But the wax issue, please don't go with the Q-tips. I'm urging you. Not, we've heard many people, perforation eardrums gone through the ear. You have to be so careful because the sebaceous glands in your ear canal produce the wax for a reason. And if you eventually continue to use the Q-tip, the glands will not produce the wax anymore, and then you will get eczema. So those of you who are itching now because you've used Q-tips every day, that's the reason. What purpose does the wax serve? It serves as a protective coating of the ear canal. So if anything goes into your ear, you know, listen, we walk in the environment, bugs, mosquitoes, it's protected, the wax grabs it, and it doesn't go further in.
if I want a tour of uh, your facility at the uh, Center for Hearing Health or I want to make an appointment for a hearing evaluation, how do I contact you? Well, you can call us by phone, which would be 516-628-4300. And you could speak to our front desk. We have a lovely staff, Lucy and Lena. So easy to remember, the two L's. And then if you want to contact me by um, email, it's Santanellis, capital S, capital A, N-T-O-N-E-L-L-I-S at milnet.org. Dr. Susan, let me go get a paper and pencil. So let's hear the phone number one more time slowly. Okay. 516-628-4300. Ask for Lucy or Lena. And my email, Santanellis, capital S, capital A, N-T-O-N-E-L-L-I-S at milnec.org. Dr. Susan Antonellis, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you for having me. That's Interesting is a production of Moser Media and is recorded at LIU Studios at Long Island University in Brookville, New York. Our post-production engineer is Chris Maffey. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Moser, hoping you have the best day of your life.